As you turn to 1 Samuel 17, I'd like to add my word of greeting to those who've already heard. The precious name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. I'm so, worship, I'm so grateful to worship the living God with you here this first Sunday in June through his son Jesus. The days are long, but the years are short, aren't they? Now, this is one of the two or three most famous stories in the history of the world. Uh, And it's one of those rare famous stories that is also literal historical fact. Because it's a long chapter, because we don't have so much time, and because you've known the story since you were children, I don't feel obliged to read every verse. However, I will pick and choose a few verses, so I would ask you uh, one last time, or one more time, to stand in honor of God and his word. 1 Samuel 17, the first group of verses I will read are 2 through 4, then I'll go to 8 through 11. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they camped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span, about nine feet. Verse eight. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. Now, that's a lie. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. That's a fiction, a fantasy. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed, and they were greatly afraid. Now skip over to verse 26. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away this reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? Verse 32. Then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistines. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would show us who the Philistines are in our generation, how we should fight them. And we pray that you would get all the glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. Fairly recently, there's been an emerging thesis among evangelical leaders that we always come away with the wrong lesson from this famous story, that really it's supposed to point to Christ as our substitute in our battle against sin and death and the devil. And well, of course. The, the whole Old Testament points to Christ. Timothy Keller, I think, is one of the famous ex, exponents. It's not, 
it's not what he affirms that I would ever disagree with him. It would be pretty dumb of me to challenge uh, a giant like Timothy Keller anyway, especially now that he's in heaven and he agrees with me on everything. <laughs> but it is a template for battle, spiritual battle, not physical battle in the Christian life. I think the first sermon title that ever arrested my attention as a new Christian was the title, The Man That God Uses. I thought, wow, I want to hear that. I don't remember who preached it. I just remember it was about Daniel. And it was of absorbing interest for me. I'm a little bit um, embarrassed in a majority of women as all worship services, literally, everywhere in the world, practically, 99% of the time, are a majority of women, to preach on a subject like the man that God uses. I'll just defend myself by saying this is the fourth time I've preached during the vacancy, and the first time I preached on Ruth, and the second time I preached on the Syrophoenician woman, so I didn't want you to think I was obsessed with women. So I'm going to talk about the man that God uses, especially because we have the installment of elders and deacons today. But please feel free to insert the believer or the woman or the boy or the girl because it fits all categories. And the first thing I would like to say is that the man that God used on this occasion was not looking for glory. He was not looking for a, a grandiose assignment. I, I know somebody, one of the most gifted people I've ever run across who, uh, in my fallen judgment, has had a series of false starts because he hasn't found anything grandiose enough, something big enough to fit his, his very real and, and, and very remarkable gifts. Here's what David was trying to do. Jesse told his son David, take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these ten loaves. Run to your brothers at the camp. Carry these ten cheeses to the captain of the thousand. See how your brothers fare and bring back news of them. That's verses 17 and 18. What did you do in the war, David? Well, I, I carried the cheese. All he was trying to do was to obey the obscure an inglorious assignment of his father. That's a great goal. Whether we can find something grandiose or not, we can always seek to obey the obscure and lowly assignments of our heavenly father. There are lots of them. If we will only seek them out. So David, who gets the assignment that Joseph got, remember, and he met with about the same uh, degree of welcome from his brothers that Joseph met, uh, he takes off. The second thing he does, he actually does a lot more things that I'm going to point out, but I'm picking and choosing. In verse 26, he assesses the risk and reward factor. David says, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, that's not mercenary. As a matter of fact, it's commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ. Who goes to war, the Lord asked in Luke 14, without counting the cost? Who builds a tower? What king 
sends his troops into battle without calculating the risk factor. I also think he may have been trying to determine, <laughs> is this army worth saving? Is this, worthy, is this army worth dying for? If they don't value the glory of God, if they don't think this blasphemy is a monstrosity, an intolerable circumstance, well worth risking our lives for in an attempt to shut the mouth of the Gittite blasphemer called Goliath. The third thing he did is he overcame opposition from unanticipated quarters. Look at verse 28. Now, Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David, and he said, what are you doing down here, boy? Your job is to watch, the, watch those scraggly sheep. Who'd you leave them with anyway? I know why you're here. I know your pride. I know your insolence, the insolence of your heart, said Eliab, because of his pride and the insolence of his heart. Because when Samuel visited the flock of Jesse, who had every reasonable expectation to be anointed? It was the oldest brother. It was Eliab. And when the youngest brother was anointed, you can imagine how this oldest brother must have seethed with a sense of injustice. Now, we're looking through uh, an abyss of ancient time. Over 3,000 years ago, one of the great proofs that the Bible is the Word of God is that it's transgenerational. And it's, it's transcultural and it's transtemporal. That is, it speaks to all people in all cultures in all times. And here we hear something very contemporary. And a little brother who's smacked down by a big brother. And so what does he say? He said, so what have I done this time? Verse 29. Can anybody talk around here? Is that against the law? Can anybody ask a question? And that's David's response. And he continues, undeterred. Um, as a matter of fact, he kept talking so much that the king sent for him. And the next thing he has to do is he's got to convince the cowardly leader. Uh, let, me just, let me just say, and I point the finger at myself. You would be amazed how much cowardice in Christian ministry is disguised as strategy. You would be amazed. Especially when it comes to witnessing. Especially when it comes to engaging unbelief. You would be amazed at how few missionaries engage unbelief. You know what we're good at? And again, I point the finger at myself. I don't even, I'm not worthy to be called a missionary, the name that I most love to call myself. I'm not worthy. You know what we're good at? Caucus. Caucus. Let's go to this conference and talk about how we're going to reach the, the unreached. Then let's go to that caucus. Then let's have this meeting. Then let's have that retreat. And we meet and we eat and we retreat. And the wicked perish, unevangelized. 
Where is the reason for delay? There is no reason. The world perisheth. But Saul says, hey, we can't do this. You can't, you can't fight with the Philistine. You're just a kid. Do you know that 16 of the men who boarded the ship to dump the tea in the Boston Harbor were teenagers? Do you know there were over 100 of them? And only nine were over 40. One of the leaders, Ebenezer Stevens, the man I wish I was descended from, but I'm glad I'm not named after, was only 22. <laughs> they were just a bunch of kids. You can't do this. You're just a kid. The fifth thing David proved was that he was faithful in incremental challenges. You don't start by killing a giant. Your servant used to keep his father's sheep, verse 34. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb out of his mouth. When it arose against me, I caught it by the beard and struck and killed it. Your servant killed both the lion and the bear. And I'll kill this Philistine just like I killed those animals. Let me tell you something, a plane ride never made a missionary. And if we're not faithful in challenges here, we're not gonna be faithful in challenges there. A mission trip is the distance between you and the next unbeliever that you see. Incremental challenges all around us. Fifthly, uh, David um, treasured the name of God. He's the only one who sees God on the landscape. Everybody else sees only the giant. He's the only one who mentions the name of God in reverence. Saul says, go and God be with you. I used to live in Bavaria. In Bavaria, my younger daughter was born there. In Bavaria, they don't say guten tag. They say gruskat. That means something like greetings from God, something along those lines. You know what it means? Doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. And when Saul said, go and God be with you, you know what it meant? Didn't mean anything. Maybe it meant, see you at the funeral, kid. One of the greatest lessons we can learn in life is to be done with secondary causes and to let nothing on the landscape eclipse the reality of the presence and the power and the purpose and the assignment of our God. He mentions the living God. That's another beautiful phrase I, I would hear because when you heard a German say, der lebendige Gott, you realize that's probably a real believer. The living God. People would say, oh, God all the time. Or the, the French say, le, le bon Dieu, I can't pronounce French, but they're just, it's, they're just, it's profanity. When somebody talks about the living God, usually they're worshiping. And we see David over and over in verse 26. 
in verse 36. Talking about the living God, verse 37. The Lord, he will deliver me. And he consecrates the name of the Lord, his God. We see him next. In his discrimination and his choice of weapons. You know, the, the church of Jesus Christ is, is being offered so many weapons. Some of them are business models. Uh, some of them are therapeutic models. You see, if, if we run the church like a successful business, we'll have a successful church. Wrong. Or if we can make people feel good and think that they can get well from whatever it is that ails them when they get here, then we'll be doing what God wants us to do. Wrong. Some of them are theatrical models. If we can just have the best show in town, we'll draw the biggest crowd in town. That's, maybe that's true. But it doesn't mean we're doing what the Lord wants us to do. If we do that, David is offered the armor of Saul. What enemy did Saul's sword ever kill? What enemy of Israel did Saul's sword ever slay? Well, maybe only Saul himself, who would soon become Israel's greatest enemy, displacing Goliath. David said, I cannot go with these. How big did you say he is? Well, he's really, really big. Well, if he's really, really big, that's great. If he's really, really big, I can't miss. If he's really, really big, I can kill him on an off day. You see how critical it is in making your choice of weapons, depending on what the threat is, depending on who your opponent is. What happens next is that David moved forward. I'm afraid that many of us as Christians and as as churches suffer from what Boone Pickens used to call the ready aim, 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 aim syndrome. Move forward, man. The church of Jesus Christ is like a bicycle. It either moves forward or it falls over. David Livingston said, I'll go anywhere as long as it's forward. David ran forward. He ran forward to the battle line. I would say almost all the time, we're either running to something or running from something. And if you're sitting down and if you're still, you're probably running from something. Maybe you're hiding in your apparent health. I stood here on a Saturday in September to stand up for a dear friend and a dear friend of this congregation. 
When the service was over, I walked right there and I talked to another good friend. I'm no judge of male beauty, nor do I aspire to be, but one of the best looking men I've ever known. A model of health. Who worked out five times a week. And, and, and 48 hours later, the man I was standing with joined the man I was standing up for. Just like that. Maybe you're running to your 401k. Maybe you're running to some other fantasy. You know, Nineveh, uh, uh, Jonah was running. He was running away from Nineveh toward Tarshish, but his, his ship could not outsail the storms. And when he was thrown off the ship, he couldn't outswim the fish. And when we're running away from the Lord, all nature conspires against us. And when we're running toward the Lord's will, our enemies fall down. And that's exactly what happened in David's case. The Philistine says in verse 43, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? David's response is, well, yeah, basically you are a dog. It says that the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Hear the psalm of Goliath. He's a worshiper too. David is about to shorten Goliath's career as a psalmist. As a matter of fact, David is about to shorten him by a head. But he's sure of himself. The Philistine says to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, see they're antiphonally singing, chanting to one another across the valley, invoking their respective gods. You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. There it is again. Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you. This day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild feasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. He's about 17 years old. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with the sword and the spear. For the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into my hands. So he followed on. He put his hand in his bag, took out a stone. He slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. You know, when you read David's epitaph, At the end of 2 Samuel, his illustrious reign is celebrated. You know that this is never mentioned? You know what he's called? He was called the sweet singer of Israel. It was not, not the sweet slinger of Israel. Not his warfare, but his worship. 
He was the composer of the Psalms. He taught Israel how to war. Yeah, that's true, but that's not what's celebrated. He taught Israel how to worship. And then you know what's celebrated? The men that he trained. The men that he discipled. When you uh, look uh, at these great histories, you see something uh, amazing. And they're in the chapters that we never uh, read. Chapters like 1 Chronicles 20. And we're presented with an array of unpronounceables. It says in verse 4, it happened afterward that war broke out at Gezer with the Philistines, at which time... Sibachai the Hushthathite killed Sippai, who was one of the sons of the giant, and they were subdued. This is 1 Chronicles 20, verse 5. Again, there was war with the Philistines, and Elhanan, the son of Jair, killed Lami, the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Yet again, there was war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature with 24 fingers and toes, six on each hand, six on each foot. He also was born to the giant. So when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimea, David's brother, killed him. These were born to the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Well, golly, in, in 1 Samuel 17, they're all cowering before one giant, and now everybody and his brother are killing all the giants in 1 Chronicles 20. What's changed? What's different? What's different is who they followed. You see, by definition, you can never get ahead of the person you're following. And under Saul's reign, you couldn't find a giant killer on the throne, and so you couldn't find a giant killer among the ranks. But by 1 Chronicles 20, they're following David. And guess what? It's hard to turn a corner too quickly in Israel without running into a giant killer. It's hard to tread without stepping on the toe of a giant killer. They're everywhere. Why? Because they have a model. Because they have a champion. Because they have a template. Because they have somebody to lead them. final thing he did is he followed through. Boy, did he ever follow through. Did you notice? Verse 50, so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. He struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Verse 51 says, therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him. Talk about follow through. He killed him twice. What does that mean? Well, it meant he killed him with the rock. But once he decapitated him and held his head up, it was certified. And everybody knew the ogre is dead. The boy has triumphed. Let's follow the boy. Now, the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted, well, it's about time. And they pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Sha'arim, even as far as Gath and Ekron. These are the great cities of the Philistines. 
Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines. They plundered their tents. Now this shows us he's just a kid. He's still just a kid. Listen to this. David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. When Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said, who is this boy? And so verse 57 said, he was brought before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. That's just like a kid. That's my head. I'm going to keep it. Nobody's going to take it from me. (laughs) There's a great passing in this text. Saul, the cowardly king, on the way down. David, the faithful shepherd boy, on the way up. Goodbye, little brother. Hello, warrior king. These are the things a man of God does. Amen. I'm going to... I'm going to do it right now. Father, it's an easy thing to read. It's a harder thing to repent. Father, it's an easy thing to listen. It's a harder thing to act. Make us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. For we ask it in the name of great David's greater son. Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen.